0: Good evening and welcome. I believe this is an important series and uh, I pray that you'll be blessed by it. I know I'm going to be blessed just by the preparation and study that's required, you know, to teach in this series. You know, I I like to read a lot of books. I also enjoy going to movies and it's something that because of my schedule I can usually uh, figure out a way to do at a matinee time, you know, so the rest of you aren't there and I don't have to pay the high prices. And... uh, we were just on vacation, in fact, uh, just got back, and while we were there, we went and saw A Bridge of Spies. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's an incredible movie about Tom Hanks and the swap of a Russian spy for our U-2 pilot who was shot down in 1960, and um, it's interesting. He is a lawyer, and he defends uh, this Russian spy, and he grows to love this guy, and, and yet he's amazed by this guy because he's dispassion- He's Uh, dispassionate about his circumstance he says don't you worry about the verdict don't you worry about prison time don't you worry about a possible death sentence as he was awaiting his trial and he's the man constantly answers him he said would it help anything you know would it help anything of course it wouldn't and uh, he continues to witness to hanks in that way But that's not what I'm here to talk about. In in fact, while we were there, we saw a trailer for another movie that's coming out. It's called In the Heart of the Sea. I don't know if you've seen that, but I didn't even realize it was coming out. In fact, I've read this book uh, a month or so ago because I'm curious about history. And this book was written about the sinking of the whale ship Essex, which happened in 1820. Uh, Herman Melville based his book Moby Dick, which is a novel, not a true historic account, in 1850 on the basis of this true account, which is the account of how a whale well ship was actually sunk by an enraged sperm well in the Pacific, 2,000 miles off the coast of South America. I was fascinated by the story, fascinated by the life of the people who did this. Uh, 80% of the whaling was done from an island called Nantucket, which is off the New England coast. And the whole island was geared towards whaling. And uh, the blubber that was uh, boiled down into oil and how it powered the world at that time. That was before petroleum was actually discovered, uh, the fuel oil that we use so much today. And uh, they... Did most of their whaling in the Atlantic. But as the whale population began to subside in the Atlantic, they went all the way around Cape Hope into the Pacific and began to whale there. They would be gone for three years and home for three months. Now we're here to talk about contentment. Would you be content with that kind of life? You know, where you would be away from your family, away from your wife, or your husband would be away from home for three years and home for three months. Almost always he came back to a child he had not yet met. That's the way it worked out. And uh, one of the ladies, Eliza Brock, wrote a poem. Uh, In fact, she called it the Nantucket Girls' Song. And here's how it goes. It speaks to her issue of contentment with this strange way of life. Then I'll haste to to wed a sailor and send him off to sea. For a life of independence is the pleasant life for me. But every now and then I shall like to see his face. For it always seems to me to beam with manly grace, with his brows so nobly open and his dark and kindly eye. Oh, my heart beats fondly toward him whenever he is nigh. But when he says, goodbye, my love, I'm off across the sea, first I cry for his departure then laugh because i am free. <laughs> that's just an interesting perspective on how she dealt with, you know, being abandoned, you know, for 3 years. we're here to talk about contentment. it's an interesting word. no signal on the tv here. Uh, but contentment is actually defined as uh, a mental and emotional state of satisfaction drawn from being at ease with one's situation in body and mind. drawn from being at ease in body and mind. I have to say what contentment is not. Contentment first of all is not apathy. It's it's not lacking all drive or all ambition. You can be content and still be driven to accomplish great things and while you're trying to accomplish those things, while you're working hard, while you're driving yourself, you can still be content with your present situation. It is not passivity taking life as it comes, like a pinball that's bounced off of the bumpers, you know, going any way that the bumper might send you. You No, you can be actively engaged in making things happen. And it's not pious acceptance either. You know, and I I speak to Christians when I say that, because there are Christians who have a fatalistic notion of God that he is, still not there, huh, that that he has uh, predetermined my course in life, and I just am left to kind of follow my way through that life. It is not that. In fact, I don't believe that's true. You know, I know that God knows in advance what I will do, but he has not predetermined that I must do those things. He simply knows the choices I will make. Contentment is not status quo either. That today is like yesterday and tomorrow will be like today. It's not just status quo, constantly repeating one thing after another. The Sadis Doctrina which is a a theological term, Uh, the seat of doctrine for this teaching of contentment actually comes from Paul's letter to the young pastor, Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter... We have the slides up on the side. Oh, you have them up on the slide? Okay, very good. Uh, The Sades Doctrina, which is a a theological term uh, that comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6, kind of the seat of doctrine, you know, for this teaching that is found throughout the Bible is this passage from Paul to the young man, Timothy. Godliness, when accompanied with contentment, is great gain. These two things, to be within the will of God and to be content with your circumstance while you are in and doing the will of God is the key to great gain. We're going to take a look at this from uh, Jesus' own temptations to discontentment, his temptation to discontentment by Satan as recorded in Luke chapter 4. Before we get there, let's pray. Lord, contentment is so huge, and, and uh, often we are tempted to be discontent with circumstance that we find ourselves in and frustrated by things that do not resolve. Lord, help us through this series and help us tonight as we study the temptations of Jesus to discontent, to understand what you would have us do, how you would have us handle those temptations that come at us even as they came at Christ. Lord, bless us with a better understanding. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take a look at uh, Luke chapter 4 beginning at verse 1. Hopefully it will also be on the screen here. Here we go. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan. This is right after his baptism. uh, After uh, he first began his public ministry at age 30. uh, His first public action. Uh, He left the Jordan where he was baptized by John. And was led by the Holy Spirit. Isn't this interesting? You know that the Holy Spirit prompted him. You know, okay, this is your first step. You know, go out into the wilderness. Uh, And so he was prompted by the Holy Spirit to go into the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days and then was tempted by the devil. You know, it's a little awkwardly phrased in this account, but uh, he fasted for 40 days and then the devil came to be a matter of temptation. The 40 day period is always interesting in the Bible. It's found throughout the Bible. And it usually indicates a a time of uh, great suffering or the time of trial that is overcome with victory. And this was the case in this uh, circumstance too. He ate nothing during those 40 days. And at the end of them, you can imagine, he was famished. He was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil was not done with him. He led him up to a high place, and he showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the entire world, the second temptation. And he said to him, I will give you all this authority and splendor. He is called the prince of this world. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil was still not finished. Came a third time at him, as he often comes to us as well. Led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple wall. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. It's a very high corner of the wall. I've stood there. Uh, For it is written... He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up on their hands so that you will not even strike your foot against a stone. They will completely protect you. Isn't is that not what the Bible says? And Jesus answered and said, uh, "It is also said, do not put the Lord your God, to a test." The end of the temptations, but there were going to be more. When the devil had finished all of his tempting, he left him for a more opportune time. There is a hallway to discontentment, a hallway that leads to discontentment, and I believe that there are three doors that guide us into that hallway, and they are represented by the three temptations that Jesus faced. First is the, the door of the perception of pressing needs. Jesus was hungry. Secondly, Our search for status. You know, I will make you authority over all the world. I have that power and I can give it to you. Or a search for future security. You know, I will take care of you and you will not have to worry about anything. Does not God say he will protect you in the future? These are the three temptations that Christ faced and they're the three temptations to discontentment that we all face. First, the perception of pressing needs. Again, the scripture from Luke 4, uh, beginning at verse uh, 1, or 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Jesus was hungry. He was famished. Uh, And when you're hungry, you can think of hardly anything else. And the devil came to him with the perception of pressing need. The devil loves Loves, loves to remind us of what we lack, what we still need. Most of us, no matter what our social status, compare ourselves to those who have more, not to those who have less. The temptation of pressing needs, by definition, is always a scarcity mindset. Always a scarcity mindset. What I lack, what I don't have. Uh, Scarcity thinking says there will never be enough. Competes to stay on top. It's not just about uh, possessions. Uh, Hoards things from others. Won't share knowledge. After all, they may use it against us or we won't get the credit for it. Won't offer help to others. Is suspicious of others. Resents competition. Afraid of being replaced. You know, fear, fear, fear. As opposed to those who think in abundance. There will always be more. I'm not worried about Using this now. Collaborates to stay on top. Glad to help others. Generous with others. Shares knowledge. Freely offers to help others. Trusts and builds rapport. Welcomes competition. Strives to grow. Believes the best is always yet to come. Believes the pie is growing, not shrinking. Thinks big. Embraces risk. Takes ownership of change. The temptation to frustration over pressing needs there's an advantage i believe if you are raised poor because you know what it's like to have nothing and so you become more appreciative for the things that you have there's an advantage to those who have suffered loss or have suffered setback last week in uh, our life changed sunday we had the testimony of a young man who had been in prison now just to have a home over his head just to have freedom, just to have any kind of a job, he was extremely happy. What one of us would be happy with only those things, but because he had loss. That's why Jesus said, you know, prostitutes and thieves will go into heaven ahead of you because they had an appreciation for what God has given. Those of us who have often suffer from lack of appreciation. There's an advantage to those who have even done without for a season of life, you know, if you have been in military and, and you have uh, been deployed, when you come back, you thank God for your freedoms because you've seen what it's like to live without them. You thank God for your family because you've been separated, whether uh, even in uh, as a missionary living in those circumstances. I remember the Hueys who were here who had spent some 30 years overseas and they came back thinking, you know, how incredibly wealthy Americans were even the least of us because they had lived so long without. There's also an advantage to compassionate people. I don't know if you've been watching uh, these refugees coming across from Syria trying to find their way to Germany or somewhere in Europe to stay. Uh, and I look at them and I think these people have nothing. And we worry about our retirement, we worry about our salaries, we worry about our cars, we worry about our homes. These people have nothing. They're putting one foot in front of the other. I heard an NBC uh, correspondent interviewing them, and there was a father who was walking with his children, and he says, you know, how is that, that you can can leave everything and just, you know, uh, move forward with your kids? And and, uh, he said... uh, Man, my kids are everything. I'll suffer anything for my kids. And this NBC correspondent said, I know just how you feel. I'm a father also. Now, he's a father who makes $10 million a year. I don't think he really understands, you know, what it's like to live like that man. But when you can see that and you can realize just how blessed we are, how fortunate we are, that temptation to be frustrated over lack of scarcity or over scarcity, I think will will take care of itself. Jesus was able to say, There is more to life than just possessions, more to life than just accomplishment. The second, I think, temptation that he faced was a a search for status. Uh, The devil came to him in Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 5, led him up to a high place, showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and all their splendor. It's been given to me, and I will give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. There's a reason that the first commandment is the first commandment, and it's not what you think. The first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. We often think about religion and we think about the commandments as what God demands of us, what God expects of us rather than what God wants to give us. Because God understands that if you know this, and if you believe this, if you are squared away on this, if you have it right in your relationship with God, everything else will take care of itself. Jesus himself said, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and everything else will take care of itself. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will come and go of its own. Each day has trouble enough of its own. I think it's one of the biggest challenges that I've faced as a pastor, and I I think it's probably my uh, greatest sense of failure that I've not been able to help people understand this, that religion is not so much what God wants from you, what kind of behavior he expects from you, uh, but rather it's a great source, a wealth of information, a wealth of comfort, a wealth of reassurance. If people understood that, we couldn 't seat them all in our churches on the weekends. They would always be here, wanting more of what God wants to give them. Jesus said, in fact, you know, uh, being king of everything, having any other kind of authority is not as significant as worshiping the Lord, who is the one who has all authority under heaven and under earth. The third door that leads to the hallway of discontentment, is concern over future security. The devil came to tempt Jesus and took him up to a high pinnacle uh, on a temple. And he said, if you will cast yourself down from here, uh, won't the scriptures be fulfilled that says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up on their hands so that you will not strike your foot even against a stone. Jesus said, do not put the Lord your God to a test. There's an old axiom that says, yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery, today is a present, that's why, or today is a gift, that's why they call it the present. No amount of shame, no amount of guilt can ever change what happened to you in the past or how you felt in the past. And it's equally true that no amount of worry can alter your future. No amount of shame can change what we have done in the past. And no amount of worry can alter our future. Corrie Ten Boone, who was the uh, great survivor of the Holocaust, uh, her family uh, uh, took care of uh, Jewish people and were arrested for it uh, in Holland. Uh, Her entire family uh, suffered death as a result of that, even her sister that she loved so much. And and, uh, she lived uh, to tell the story and became a a worldwide uh, speaker of faith and how her faith sustained her through those times. She said, worrying does not empty tomorrow of its troubles. All it achieves is emptying today of its strength. The paradox to me is that when it comes to worrying about the future, it seems to me that the more we have, the more we worry rather than the less we worry. It would seem that the less we have, the more we worry. But that's not true. People who have little uh, don't often worry too much about the future. Uh, they've learned to live with that circumstance. But those of us who are blessed worry a great deal about it. And we think that someday, you know, we're going to be able to change it. We're going to be able to come, become generous people. We're going to be uh, confident people. We're going to be secure people. But as I've spent, you know, some 35 years in ministry, I find that that's simply not true. The more we have, the more we fear our loss. How you live now is really how you will live in the future. You have set the path, and it will not change no matter how much more you accomplish. So it's very, very important that you understand that God has provided for you in the past. He has provided for you even now. And he will provide for you also in the future. There are three takeaways on this business of contentment that I'd like to share with you. Uh, First is this. Is that temptation itself is not a sin. Uh, Jesus did not sin by being tempted. It's not a weakness to be tempted. It's simply an opportunity to demonstrate faith. When temptation comes... Uh, that you would question your pressing needs and, and what you don't have, it's an opportunity for you to demonstrate faith in God's provision. Man will not live by bread alone. When the devil comes and tempts you to concern yourself with status and recognition and accomplishment, it's an opportunity for you to say, you know, this is who I am. I'm God's child. What greater thing could I accomplish than that? I can't tell you in my own personal circumstance how many people have said to me, Steve, it's really important that when you retire, that you retire to something rather than just retire. As though what I do determines who I am. I'm not defined by what I do. I'm defined by my attitudes in life. And by the opportunities that present themselves every day. So I don't find my title or my accomplishments to be the thing that most satisfies me. Temptation is not weakness, it's not sin, it's simply opportunity. When you know who you are, you know what you are not. When you know you are God's child, when you know that every day presents the opportunity to serve him uh, by living out those qualities, by living out those values in your life, by helping others, uh, then you will find every day a sense of satisfaction, a sense of accomplishment, and a sense of security knowing that the Lord will always provide as he has always provided, But when you place your hope on those things that can be lost, those things that can be taken away, those things that uh, can be eventually laid down, then you will never find the security that God intends. Finally, there is more to the Lord's prayer than simply memory work. We pray, our Father who art in heaven, holy be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father, the one in heaven, the one who has all authority, all power in heaven and on earth, the one who sent Jesus Christ to save me, holy be your name. Not just in the world, your name is holy indeed without my prayer, but let me keep it holy. Let me honor it in my life and let me do your will on earth as it's done in heaven. That is the key uh, to contentment, not other things, but just to be God's person, doing God's things in your life, you finally ask, have to ask yourself, you know, is your purpose driving your ambition, or is your ambition driving your purpose? Let me pray. Lord, we ask that you would uh, bless us with a sense.